0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Abayomi Zikaway, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Zikaway. Today is Saturday, uh, June 3rd, uh, 2023. Uh, we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the African Union peace plan to end the fighting in the Republic of Sudan. Unrest uh, has continued in the West African state of Senegal in response to the conviction of an opposition leader uh, earlier in the week. A foreign minister's meeting is taking place in the Republic of South Africa in preparation for the upcoming BRICS summit in July. And the Nigerian Labor Congress uh, has announced a strike to protest the cancellation of fuel subsidies uh, by the new government in the Federal Republic of Nigeria. In the second hour, we look in detail at the developments in Sudan, Senegal, and the BRICS preparatory meeting uh, in South Africa that's taking place this weekend. Finally, we begin our month-long series in recognition of Black Music Month. In this first episode, we pay tribute to Dr. Nico Cassandra of the Democratic Republic of Congo, along with the early architects of the post-World War II African American popular music. And right now, we want to start out uh, with our musical interlude uh, as a tribute uh, to uh, Dr. Nico Cassandra, uh, one of the architects of uh, modern-day Congolese music, a guitar player, a composer. And uh, we'll have more information on Dr. Nico Cassandra. Uh, this is an album uh, he did uh, with the Africa Fiesta. The album was entitled Sakita. Let's listen in. <laughs>
2: Senga tubela, okondi mangai Nakota mwisa yomoto, koyondi ma Yee, buji yomote, mangalula Lala konginga, nasenga tubela, okondi mangai Nakota mwisa yomoto, koyondi ma Yee, buji yomote, mangalula (muchas) Kongi na swenga tumela ukoni manga i nakota mvisa ya mosa poya ni ma e bushi ya galula ya milangi goya vango Kolalisano lisano koba sana te komba bolingo klematini suki ya mama moye bimi ya money Mama na kamunga <music> Koya of the moon, I'm a man of the moon, a man of the me a Ngalula, mama na kamunga Kola Bangolo, pola nisano Koba sana teko mwagolino Nazala kamwasi amoto mwunene Chantal komone nangayte
3: Nakati ambula mwbimba bimaoyo.
2: Maele am a little bit of a little
3: bit
2: of a little bit of a I'm going to go to I am a man whos a man whos a ya whos a man 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 whos a na whos a Ake langa Lele ya pamba wala na na dalatanisho Falo ya lazimi Ebu mingi na I'm ready to take care. I can't Namet. ya kingadi ya I'm Janina, Janina Janina atamu salingai, na. Jani na kamatanga, ata Namoti salingai, na koko yawni na Janina bomagara. ndi magi, yoko bela Sikoya mama, ok ilibala na loba boni. Janina nga matangay, atamo salina yo. Namotina yo salingay, na kopia oni na mifoma mama. Janina ondi baki, o lobaki yoko ba la ngay. mama, okai ili balana loba foboni. Na zela mingi mbingi, na linga yalelo. Oye ko sa di
4: mama,
2: jani di mama, na mama na kopo na na magani si, kunakomaza oyena linga yalelo oyevaka mama. Kando ngai, okota misha mwa na Congo. Toki na vazi mama. Salam sala mala mu nga ya kongo sala jante. na sangwe mingi pooso na yaonga na bana pe nga longo nye ya solo na doris nde souka ya liwa ya nga na mo te na songwe solo le ya the rhythm is so cayenne you La 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 go ya pongo la shanti Tatangwe miñi to solo le oh, yo oh. ponga oh, la oh, yo oh. soy oh. bella longo nya ya ya ni sa ngai I'm okay. Na landenge wanate na evisa kio malamu na kei na kusonga na kei abijana na kei jaloa na kominabwage bauma ya musungu karami ngai chana. Ina yau beba bi maka nan lokan da binon na Je m'en fous, tu dois partir. Allez, mais qu'est-ce que c'est pour Mais non, des Mais mais il la n'a pas le temps pour C'est hey, mieux français,
3: venez-vous.
2: Hey! Libala on yon, na balande ma cambo, ma boyo planelli cambo, e ben dishinga motema, seigne on samé. I'm yema to go La taza se tenía el ámbar, sanguñoso, paz y la paz. La conversación te equitite, son y penas maligas. Yo que no sacaste, voy a ponerlo. Llego con mi ya fue así mamá. I'm I'm a man, <imitation> I'm a a Lele
1: back and uh, that was uh, the music of uh, Dr. Nico Cassandra and uh, that is from the album entitled Sukisa uh, Dr. Nico Cassandra uh, performing uh, on that uh, track along uh, with the band uh, Africa Fiesta and we're paying tribute uh, to uh, Dr. Nico Cassandra, uh Nicholas Cassander while Um Born uh, on July 7th of 1939, uh, made his transition on September 22nd of 1985. He was uh, popularly known as Dr. Nico. He was a guitarist, a composer, and one of the pioneers of Congolese music. Uh, he was born in uh, Nikolai, uh in the previous uh, Belgium-Congo. Uh, he graduated in 1957. As a technical teacher, but inspired by his musical family, he took up the guitar and in time became a virtuoso soloist. At the age of 14, Cassandra started playing with the group Grand Cali a l'African Jazz, led by Joseph Grand Cali Cabaselli. Uh, he became an influential guitarist. In fact, uh, Jimi Hendrix visited him while on tour in Paris uh, during the late 1960s. And the originator of the ubiquitous uh, Congolese uh, finger-picked guitar style acquiring the nickname Dr. Nico, uh, African jazz, split up in 1963 when he and singer Tabu Le Roshru left to form the orchestra African Fiesta, which we just heard uh, in the previous uh, tracks, uh, which became one of the most popular bands on the African continent. In 1970, uh, Cassandra wrote an arrangement uh, of the Luba Folk Song, Kamulangu recorded it uh, with his band, uh, the Orchestra African Fiesta Sukisa, and released it to much success in Kinshasa, the capital of the now Democratic Republic of Congo. He withdrew from music scene in the mid-1970s following the collapse of his Belgian record label and made a few final recordings in Togo in West Africa not long before he died in a hospital in Brussels, Belgium, uh, in 1985. Uh, that was, of course, a tribute uh, to uh, Dr. Nico Cassandra, uh, one of the legendary figures in uh, Pan-African music uh, since uh, the World War II uh, period. Uh, right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our leave deals with the African Union, uh, which has put forward its own peace proposal to resolve the conflict inside the Republic of Sudan, the Afghan Union Commission, led by Chairperson Musa Faki Mahatma, has revealed a comprehensive roadmap for an inclusive political process aimed at resolving the conflict in Sudan. The roadmap was presented during the third meeting of the Expanded Mechanism for the Resolution of the Conflict in Sudan, which took place in Addis Ababa on Wednesday, uh, May 31st was chaired by Mohamed El-Hassin Labat, spokesperson for the African Union process for Sudan. The meeting discussed the details of the roadmap. Mahatma told the meeting uh, that the African Union strategy to end the conflict focuses on establishing an inclusive political process that encourages dialogue among prominent military, civilian, uh, political, and uh, social actors in the Republic of Sudan. He added that this approach aims uh, to engage stakeholders from all segments of the national spectrum, including signatories of the Juba agreement in finding a solution to the conflict. This inclusive dialogue is vital for transitioning Sudan back to a civilian role, rebuilding public services, addressing the urgent needs of the population and preparing the country for democratic free and fair elections. That's according to the chair of the African union Commission. Now, during a press conference following the meeting, Mohamed El-Hassin Labat emphasized that the Sudanese should take ownership of this process. He stressed that it should be a collective effort without ideological or other influences. At the same time, the international community, including the African Union, the United Nations, and the Intergovernmental Authority on Development should provide support without seeking to lead the process. Labatt further stated that the political process should not only focus on resolving the ongoing conflict between the Sudanese army and paramilitary forces, but should also encompass constitutional arrangements for the transitional period, the formation of a civilian government, and programs to address the civilian population's needs in terms of food and security. He added that the process should pave the way for organizing democratic elections as soon as possible. In other news, in the West African state of Senegal, tensions remain high all day today after fresh overnight clashes brought the death toll to 15 in the two days since a court-convicted opposition leader, Usman Sonko. Sonko's ongoing legal woes have prompted rare flare-ups of violence in Senegal, typically a bastion of stability in the West Africa region, and foreign allies have urged a return to calm. Song Ko, a 48-year-old former tax inspector, was initially charged with rape, but was convicted on a lesser charge of morally corrupting a young woman and sentenced to two years in prison. He claims the charges against him were bid by the government to torpedo his political career ahead of the presidential election next year. His conviction may take him out of the running for the twenty twenty four poll. Clashes between Song's supporters and police broke out after the ruling uh, just two days ago, leaving nine people dead. Shops and businesses have been ransacked. The army was deployed to the streets, but fresh couples erupted uh, yesterday, last evening, in parts of the capital of Dakar and in Zingwishaw. They left another six dead, government spokesman Moham Khan uh, told the international press. burned out cars, tires, debris, shone, streets bore testimony to another night of violence in Senegal. The government has acknowledged that it has restricted access to social networks such as Facebook, WhatsApp, and Twitter in order to stop the, quote, decimation of hateful and subversive messages, unquote. Government spokesman uh, Abdou Karim Fofana said yesterday that the violence was not fueled by political demands but acts of vandalism and banditry. And we'll have more information uh, on uh, the current security situation in uh, the West African state of Senegal Uh, later on in this broadcast. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, um, the BRICS uh, Summit, uh, meaning Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa Plus, says this new development bank, the NDB, has recorded impressive progress. They say it has grown membership from five to eight members and a ninth is set to join soon. The BRICS meeting of foreign ministers in Cape Town, South Africa has been taking stock of the bank's performance led by former Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff. International Relations Minister Alidi Pandora said that the bank was playing a key role in advancing the development agenda of developing nations. She said that members were also pleased with uh, its financial ratings. And finally, uh, in the West African state of the Federal Republic of Nigeria, Nigeria's uh, main labor union, the Nigeria Labor Congress, uh, has said it plans to go on strike from Wednesday to protest against a hike in fuel prices and what would be the first big test for the West African nation's new president, Bola Ahmed, after he scrapped fuel subsidies. That's the NNPC, the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, a private limited liability company that illegally announced the price regime in the oil sector, refuses to revert itself for negotiations to continue. That the Nigeria Labor Congress and all its affiliates will withdraw and their services and, uh, and their services and commence protests nationwide. That's according to Joe Ajago, uh, president of the Nigeria Labor Congress, said uh, yesterday at an emergency meeting. And it is instructive that until the government is properly constituted and people who will negotiate with labor and such people with mandate and capacity to commit the government of the day, such negotiations may not be valued wherever, unquote, Ajaro added. Nigerians are struggling with the surging fuel prices after newly elected President Bola Kanubu declared an end to popular subsidies, a move analysts and experts said was long overdue. On his first day in office, Kanubu kept to his campaign promise and announced an end to the long-running arrangement, which has given Nigerians access to cheap petrol. The continent's biggest economy is oil-rich but has meager refining capacity. For years, it has swapped crude uh, for gasoline that it then subsidizes for its domestic market, causing a huge drain on revenue, foreign exchange, and contributing to ballooning debt. And... um, With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the pan Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com that's panafricannews.blogspot.com if you'd like to have access to today's program uh, the pan african journal worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh for uh Saturday June 3rd uh, 2023 uh just of course uh go uh, to our website at the pan-african radio network that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal we'll take a break we'll be back with more of our program for this week um uh, Tina Turner, uh, and of course, uh, Tina Turner made her uh, transition um, a little over a week ago uh, in uh, Switzerland, and uh, later on this month, uh, which is Black Music Month, we will pay uh, more attention uh, to the lifetimes and contributions of Ike and Tina Turner, uh, of course, being pioneers in uh, black music and, of course, spreading it uh, worldwide and influencing so many other artists uh, here in the United States and indeed internationally. As we mentioned in the Pan-African Newswire segment, uh, there has been unrest uh, for the last several days in the West African state of Senegal. We want to look in detail at uh, what has been happening there uh, in the aftermath of uh, the conviction of uh, opposition party leader uh, Usman Sanko. Uh, it's reported today that Some um, 13 people have been killed in the unrest. Let's listen to this report. The trial and
5: conviction of Senegal's opposition leader has sparked protests and riots in one of Africa's most stable democracies. Several people are dead. Why has the unrest been so widespread? And is there a risk of more instability? This is Inside Story. Welcome to the program. I'm Mohamed Jamjoum. Demonstrations broke out in Senegal after a court sentenced opposition leader Ousmane Sanko to two years in prison. He was convicted of corrupting the youth but cleared of rape. The charges relate to an incident at a massage parlor in 2021. Supporters say the violence across the country reflects widespread anger, particularly among unemployed young people who feel ignored by the political elite. They say the case against Sanko was politically motivated and part of a plot to stop him running for president next year. Macky Saul's government denies this and says Senegal is facing an insurrection. It's promised to use all measures necessary to restore stability. Nicholas Hawk was at some of those protests on Thursday and has this report from Dakar.
6: We're inside Dakar University and look at it now. There's sheer destruction everywhere across this university but also across the country banks have been looted, supermarkets have been destroyed, and the army has been called out. Here, inside Dakar University, where there was heavy protest yesterday, students burnt down the faculty of law. Now, that's more than a symbol. They say they don't trust the justice system of this country, following the verdict of Usman Sanko. And they say they'll continue to fight until he's eligible to run in the upcoming presidential elections. And that's why you have so much violence at the moment. That's what's at stake. It's these elections that are still nine months away. So why now? Well, one of the reasons there's so much tension is the intentions of President Mikey Sall. Will he or will he not run for a third mandate? And that uncertainty is fueling the violence here in Senegal, a country that's not accustomed to such violence, a country known for its stability. And democracy but now the military are on the streets protecting key areas people are scared they're at home there's a saying in Wolof that, that in the local Senegalese language that the Senegalese do not like the sight of blood but there's been so much blood being poured and so now religious leaders are involved in trying to negotiate a way out of this political crisis they'll be meeting with opposition leader Ousmane Fonko, but also members of the government to find an end to the violence. Nicholas Hawke, Al Jazeera, for Inside Story.
5: The West African country with a population of 17 million won independence from France in 1960. It has good relations with the U.S. and E.U. as well as China and has long been seen as a model of stability and democracy in a volatile region. The current unrest stems from domestic political rivalry. President Macky Sall was elected in 2012 and is due to step down next year. But he argues that he could run again because of changes to the Constitution in 2016, which shortened the presidential term. Former tax inspector Usman Sanko is popular among unemployed young people, and supporters say he's being targeted by political rivals, including Sall. Sanko's lawyer says the jail term jeopardizes his chance of running for office in 2024. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests in London, Mujahid Durmaz, who's an analyst with Verisk Maplecroft Global Risk Intelligence Consultancy. In Paris, Marie-Roger Billoa, the chairwoman and CEO of the Africa International Media Group. And Indikar Borso tall a freelance journalist who has reported extensive, extensively on Senegal's political and social tensions. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Borso, let me start with you today. Why has the unrest thus far in Senegal been so widespread?
7: Uh, Thank you for having me. Uh, The widespread uh, news around Sonko's case or this case of uh, uh, rape and uh, sexual assault overall uh, has reached this far simply because it's quite opposite of what Senegal has always been known for which means a peaceful country, stable in West Africa, and respectful of all international laws. So to come to this um, state at which right now uh, the population is extremely angry at the government for simply having applied, and I will explain later, uh, the law over a rape case, Uh, that is um, the reason why everything is uh, under chaos Mm. right now. Uh, People Uh, are very angry and against the decision made by the justice system uh, to decide over a rape case um, so far.
5: Marie Roger, let me get uh, your perspective on this. Um, Do you believe that there is a risk for more instability? Do you think that that these protests will spread, uh, that people will get angrier?
0: So, you know, what we've been seeing so far is that... um, As I said before, Senegal has been trying to show um, a peaceful and democratic figure. And um, and, uh, if the government has always responsibility when there's trouble. But I think this time around, uh, Mr. Ousmane Sonko has been calling for riots and uh, telling his supporters to to go to the presidency and overthrow Mr. Makisa, And uh, this is quite a difference with other uh, politicians, even from the opposition. I remember that uh, a couple of years ago, there were situations where uh, other uh, candidates to uh, run for the president had been excluded uh, for running. And uh, I think of Abdul... uh, uh, the, uh, Wad uh, the Sun and uh, Karim Wad and the Khalifa Sal uh, they may have they, they found that situation very unfair to them but they didn't call for violence so this is a, a special case where you have uh, somebody who's been condoning uh, uprisings calling for destruction calling for uh, and uh, and since he entered the game and uh, they're, they they're, I, I would also say that uh, they they are really cracking down on, he, on him hmm. more severely than on others because he has opted for confrontation hmm. for for defying institutions so um, we are all very uh, worried by the situation right now because Until now, he failed. He has failed to call Hmm. his supporters to stop violence and to keep quiet. This is very necessary
8: on his part.
5: Mujahid, uh, supporters of Usman Sanko, of course, are angry. Uh, They have been denouncing the charges against the opposition leader. They have accused uh, President Makisal of using the justice system to eliminate political opponents. Um, How much of that sentiment is fueling all of this.
9: Well, um yeah, just to give a bit of context, um you know, uh picking up uh on the point uh that raised by Borso is, yes, the Senegal is often praised as a, you know, in the global politics as a stable democracy, is a beacon of stability, but that, that hasn't, that has not been um, translated uh, in this, uh, translate in the socio-economical conditions of the Senegalese people in so far. Um, there are significant concerns about increasing authoritarianism, authoritarianism, excessive use of force, police force that, that we've seen um, on the streets of Dakar, erosion of judicial uh, independence, democratic backsliding. Um, these are serious concerns uh, because, you know, over the years, since 2021, we've seen uh, protests, anti-government protests becoming more and more popular because, uh, Sonko represents a large part of the Senegal's youthful population that have not benefited from the economic boom that the country has seen over the years, mm. right? So high GDP growth and the oil and gas reserves, um, they have mm. not been uh, significantly benefited from this from this uh, um, development. And then they accuse the government, this uh, President Sall, of failing to address the widespread um, socio-economic I- uh, issues that the, the large parts of the society is dealing with, especially mm. in urban areas that we see. So what happens is that the called steps in, and he's a uh, Pan-African and anti-Western stance um, that targets the political elite very harshly, uh, fight against the corruption since uh, 2016, since he was a tax, uh, um, tax inspector, mm. and question the significant uh, French influence that uh, that, uh, you know, a uh, uh, Paris enjoys on the country's economy and politics. So in that sense, the widespread protests are not surprising because the elimination of the uh, sonko from the uh, election in 2024 yeah. uh, will likely increase this sense of disfranchisement among the young people.
5: I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm I'm going to get back to you in a minute about the the anti-French sentiment that you were just referring to. But uh, first, I want to go to Borso again. Borso, um, let's talk about another angle to all this that's being discussed. Uh, Are some of the tensions that we are witnessing now a a result of the fact that it's really unclear at this stage if President Sall intends to seek a third term as president?
7: Well, that is the root uh, of this whole situation. When we look at the patterns, uh, like Marie-Roger mentioned earlier with the cases of uh, Khalifa Saleh and Karim Wad at the time before Sanko arrived at the uh, political scene in Senegal, uh, there was a question of third term. So we've had different alternance, what we call alternance in French. Uh, The first one was in 2000, putting an end to 40 years of uh, state power uh, for the for the uh, socialist party, so in 2000 Abdoulay Wad came into power, uh, did his two terms. To make it short, At, in 2012 Macky Sall came into power for, on the basis that Abdoulay Wad will never run for a third term. So that was the number one reason why people voted for Macky Sall and against Wad. Uh And now what we're seeing is a repetition of those issues. Makisalo who hasn't said a word yet, official word about him um, willing to run, but everything around it looks like it, uh, and even his, uh, his, his allies in his political party, APR, have already stated uh, that he is their candidate for 2024. So having that in mind, the population of Senegal is not willing to repeat the same mistakes of the past, meaning refusing Abdoulaye Wad a third term and now accepting it for Makisal, And that is the main issue that is like the cause of all this. Uh, refusing a third term as a tradition for the past um, a few uh, candid- uh, presidential candidates mm. and now having it in face and having to face it with violence. Mm. That is the major difference. And having to face it with someone who is not willing to let go. Sonko is not... Uh, willing to let go, and he's ready to use violence in Mm -hmm. order to have um, the Constitution respected, meaning no more than two consecutive terms. But besides that, there's also the question of women's rights, and I would like to come back to that.
10: Uh, yeah of so let, me, me to, let, let me let me yeah, yeah I'll, I'll get, I will right get there. back to
7: you on that
5: in just in just a couple of minutes. Uh, first, I want to ask Marie Roger to expand a little bit on on the discussion we were just having with regards to a potential third term for president Sal. Uh, president Sal has said that he uh, can that he believes he can run again for a third term because of changes that were made to the constitution in two thousand sixteen, which shortened the presidential term um Marie-Roger, from your point of view, is this a valid argument? Uh, uh, can this actually be done?
0: You know, uh, like uh, uh, as explained uh, before, previously, right now, uh, Senegal, the situation in Senegal is very particular because uh, President uh, Macky vowed not to run again, not to seek a third term. There are videos recalling that there are tweets he made where he he called for demonstrations that peaceful demonstrations, I must say um and he was very much against um uh, term so that's why uh, the senegalese are very much they are upset and uh, they don't like that issue um so we understand that hmm. um but the point is uh When you look at the the story in Africa right now, you know, people who don't, residents who don't seek third terms are the exception. So what I mean is uh, we all want fresh air, fresh blood, new ideas. We we want, uh, uh, you know, in uh, government to, new governments to come so that you have a renewal of, of everything, new energy and that's what we are we are fighting for but i don't believe it's something we have to die for because um when you look at uh situation right mm. now as i say um politi- who who are really benefiting for mm. for uh, uh certain terms not the population only people who want power mm. and uh and also you see the judgment is very different the, uh, uh according to the situation you see Rwanda president kagame has organized for him to to stay maybe 20 years more nobody nobody you don't hear uh, uh opposition very much international opposition even in africa you don't mm-hmm. hear that so and we, you see in Central marie Africa, Roger, everywhere. I'm sorry to inter-
5: marie yeah. Roger, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I just want to go back to uh, Mujahid about a point that he was making a moment ago. Uh, Mujahid, you were, you were speaking specifically about anti-French sentiment, uh, I believe you said, among supporters of Mr. Songo. Could you expand on that and talk about, from your perspective, why that might be driving uh, uh, whether it's his popularity or some of the
11: protests?
9: well yeah i mean historically uh the the you know the French hold uh, significant economic and political uh influence in the country as a formal um colonizer and um and um i think if i'm not mistaken since 2019 uh france was the largest source of uh, uh foreign direct investment in senegal since uh, it was taken over by um china at the moment so it holds a significant uh, power in the country specifically and in the case of what uh, in the context of this this protest what's happening is, is that especially 20 uh, the protest that we we saw in um 2021 um, a lot of protesters uh, looted the uh, French businesses across the country, especially in dakar, is because they they claim that the source of the issues that they 're having with um, the corruption the socio economic inequalities mm-hmm. um, these are the issues related to the French influence in, in, in the country. So there is this uh, perception in light of the anti-French sentiment across different parts of West Africa mm-hmm. is, is, is that the French is uh, seriously involved in, in uh, Senegalese politics and then they're the ones that are pulling the strings and, and uh, you know, Sonko representing a Pan-African stance and his supporters mm-hmm. align with that sentiment as well, um, saying that, uh, we don't want France involved mm. in our in our politics as well. Um, that's why we we saw that the protesters attacked the the French businesses in 2021, and mm. uh, you know in the future if the protests continue, we might be able to uh, see the same scenes again. Mm.
5: Uh, more so. Um, so I want to get back to a point that you were trying to make a moment ago. Um, the question I have, women's rights groups in Senegal have expressed concern that the Sonko rape trial has set back women's rights in the country. What was it about the case that has so dismayed feminists and advocates for women's rights in Senegal?
7: Women have been used for this case that has underlying political uh, matters. And that's their loss. The women lose in this process. And that's that's where the whole problem comes with uh, putting a cloud over all the fight that women have gone through in order to have these laws applied and respected in the country. Mm. So here we have a woman accused of rape, uh, a a man accused of rape. But because there is no proof and because of so many issues attached to politics over the case of rape itself, people now will just uh, not, give any uh, attention to the real cases of of, of, um, sexual assault. And that brings together gender issues. It brings all together just issues that women will go through when it comes Mm. time for them to stand up and talk about rape cases. So it's just a cloud over politics has been clouding uh, the gender issues and have been clouding the question of rape and how far women have come Mm. to fight for their rights.
5: Marie so well, Roger, um, let me ask you: If tensions continue to escalate in Senegal, what are the concrete steps that can be taken to try to calm things down?
0: Well, I think uh, uh, in uh, this particular situation, um, both I would say both part the power, the the, the public authority, and Ousmane Sonko and, and his uh, supporters are responsible of what's happening. So, I think. And I I insist on that. I think Osman Sonko should call his supporters and, and ask them to stop rioting, stop violence. Um, he's the one who has uh, leverage on them. They will listen to, he, to him and not to the government, uh, obviously. So to show that he's a responsible man, I think he should do that because at the end of the day, it's... All about politics, and uh, we—they we, polit- they are there not—they uh, uh, are there to ensure that people are not being killed,
3: mm-hmm. and
0: uh, especially young people, and uh, just because of, of because they want power. That's what it's all about. We, it's very important that he says he he comes out and he says, "Please, let's calm down. We will work out this issue politically,
3: mm-hmm. because." Mm-hmm.
0: There are new rendezvous. There are a lot of things which can be done from now. But first, the violence should stop.
5: Mujahid, um, there is some question about what the ramifications of this verdict will be when it comes to Mr. Sanko's political future. From your vantage point, does the sentence against Mr. Sanko disqualify him as a presidential candidate in 2024? Can he still run? Uh, and also, can the sentence be appealed, or is this judgment final?
9: Well, he will likely to be eliminated from the race, uh, unless there's a successful appeal by him but that's very unlikely because the uh the court in separate cases uh refused his appeal so he will uh most likely to be eliminated from the race and taken uh behind the bars and in terms of the uh the imprisonment it's two years um considering that half uh have you know a young Sonko is and then how uh galvanized huge support, huge wave of support from the public. I do not uh, foresee that the, uh, this is the end of uh, Sonko's political future. He will definitely uh, remain as a significant actor in the Senegalese uh, politics moving forward. Mm. But there are there are two, you know, there are two different, uh, specifically in the context of protest, there are two different scenarios. Either um, Sal will very harshly, repressively uh, squash the protest, uh, take, uh behind the bars and will go ahead with the third term that mm. means increasing authoritarianism in the country or in the second uh, second scenario is uh following this strong and powerful pu- public back uh, pushback there will be at political negotiations between the different um, sites to find uh, a peaceful solution and, uh, you mm-hmm. know, maybe one last point in terms of possibility of the military queue, because we, we, uh, we heard over the, you know, last few days, uh, I do not foresee any possibility of the military queue because Senegal has a relatively functioning democracy, diverse mm. range of uh, political parties, robust civil society, and then they have influential social leaders, religious leaders. They usually step in to mediate the political dispute between mm-hmm. the, uh, between the politicians. So, uh, yes, it will, Definitely be a turbulent times for Senegal, mm-hmm. but I do not foresee definitely military intervention at this point
5: uh, Borso, so I know that there are a lot of issues at play when it comes to what's going on in Senegal right now And also we just have about two minutes left But I, I want to ask you if if one of the things young people are taking away from this moment is if young people in Senegal are seeing This moment as their opportunity to put pressure on the government and address the issues that are impacting them the most
7: uh, very, very simply put, the young people do not want a third term for President Magisal. And they do not want to see what they call their last chance for their hopes and dreams to come to pass just disappear with Sonko. Simply put. They don't want a third term. They do not want Sonko to be put in jail because there is a history of candidates putting a, being put aside because the president doesn't want them to run for presidential, that's it. We well,
5: have less than a minute, Marie Roger. If Sall does announce that he will seek a third term, will more people come out into the streets? Do you believe that will be the case?
0: Uh, probably, but I, I, I think uh, people don't like the idea. There are a lot of people who don't like that idea, for sure, as we see. Uh, but uh, some also do like the idea. We should say that too, because I, I met some. So the point is, if at, at the end of the day, he, he has enough uh, arguments, uh, legal arguments, because he said he has consulted this and that, and the, that the Supreme Court said he can run. Um, I think what people can do is to ensure that the election is free and fair, that he can run, but he might not win. So uh, I think that they, they, but nobody should die for it right now.
5: All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Mujahid Dormaz, marie Roger Biloua, and Borso Tal. And thank you too for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page, that's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Mohammed Jamjoum and the whole team here, bye for now.
1: Welcome back. And that was a a report on uh, the security situation in the West African state of Senegal, uh, where uh, opposition forces have been demonstrating and uh, a number of people have been killed uh, in the aftermath of the uh, conviction of uh, Usman Sanko, a leader of the opposition in uh, Senegal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Uh, Mr. Chester Arthur Burnett uh, from uh, Sunflower County, Mississippi, better known as uh, Howlin' Wolf. And that track was entitled Moaning at Midnight. And right now we want to move into another report, uh updated uh, report on the situation, the security situation in the Republic of Sudan. Let's listen in.
12: So we begin in Sudan, where there has been heavy artillery shelling and gunfire in the capital Khartoum after a shaky ceasefire collapsed. Earlier, the United States and Saudi Arabia suspended talks between the army and rapid support forces. The talks in Jeddah were aimed, were meant to negotiate the safe delivery of humanitarian aid, but the warring sides have violated the ceasefire agreement. Washington also sanctioned companies linked to both sides of this conflict. Meanwhile, the World Food Program says that one of its warehouses has been under attack. Armed men looted the facility containing tens of thousands of tons of food and supplements in al That's in south-central Sudan. This is one of the largest logistic hubs of the U.N. agency in Africa. The World Food Program says it will put more than 4 million people caught in conflict at risk. Eber Morgan is in Omdurman, across the Nile River from Khartoum. Hiba, hey, do we know who is stealing this food that civilians will so badly need?
13: Well, we spoke to residents in El lubaid and we spoke to some senior UN officials here in the capital, Khartoum, and, uh, or rather in Sudan, because most of the UN staff have moved to the eastern city of Port Sudan. So those who we spoke to accused the rapid support forces of being behind the looting of the warehouse in Al-Lubaid uh, that, uh, that led to at least 20,000 metric tons of food being looted. Now they also said that civilians who were also in need of uh, food were also, uh, that also did participate in the uh, looting of the warehouse in uh, North Kurdistan. But it's worth noting that it is not the only robbery that the World Food Program faced since the start of the conflict. Uh, Tens of thousands of metric tons have been robbed from their warehouses in the western part of the capital in the Darfur region. Their warehouses here in the capital Khartoum have also been looted, along with uh, warehouses belonging to other organizations. Their offices have been vandalized, properties have been destroyed. All of that affecting the aid operations here where millions of people still remain trapped in desperate need of humanitarian assistance. Now, the looting and the fighting is making it very hard for humanitarian agencies to work to deliver uh, food supplies to those who need it here in the capital. So they are concerned that the ongoing looting and, uh, and, and the hampering of operations due to the violence will affect those here in the capital Khartoum who are in need of assistance.
12: Hiba, tell us about those sanctions that the U.S. has imposed on both sides of this conflict, the Army and the RSF. Do you expect that to change the course of this conflict?
13: Well, first of all, let's look at the companies that have been sanctioned. You have two companies that are affiliated to the Rapid Support Forces and are responsible for uh, getting them weapons and the technicals that are currently driving around the capital Khartoum in the military operations of the Rapid Support Forces. One of them based here in the capital Khartoum, another based in the United Arab Emirates. Now, these companies are responsible, I would say, for uh, getting in the vehicles that uh, the RSF have been driving around the capital Khartoum for their weapons and also for their economic investments, uh, including the gold trade. So those are the companies that have been targeted by the United States when it comes to the RSF. When it comes to the Army, their companies, uh, their companies targeted include companies that match, manufacture ammunition, weapons, parts, basically everything that the armed forces would need. And the whole purpose is for the two sides to have less uh, fighting capabilities to uh, reduce the conflict or rather make sure that it does not last as long as possible. But ha- for it to have an impact would take time, time that many people here say they cannot afford as many remain trapped between the fighting uh, of the Iraqi support forces and the Sudanese army.
12: Hiba, hey, thank you very much for that reporting from Omdurman just across the river from Khartoum. Let's bring in abdul Karim Milgoni. He is... Chairman and researcher at Sidra Institute for Strategic Studies. He joins us via Skype now from Johannesburg in South Africa. How do you think both, both sides, sir, feel about these U.S. sanctions? Do they fear them or are they confident? Do you think they can get around them for now? Okay. I'm, I'm going to assume that probably you didn't hear the, the question the first time. Sir, how do you think both sides of the fighting... Mr. Abdul-Karim Elgoni feel about these sanctions?
14: I think the the two parties, thank you for having me, I think the two parties, they don't take it seriously, they don't see the impact on it immediately, and they won't uh, abide by it. It is not a, a heavy stick enough. To, take in, to make any of them be concerned, because I think they were expecting it, and they made, they made their preparations to avoid, to avoid its impact as long as possible. So I don't think the, 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 said, the said sanctions will make a big difference to this war.
12: Do they fear further waves of sanctions? Because you know that that's what we usually see in these conflicts, especially with the U.S. You know, it's, sanctions are step one to try and in, incentivize the belligerents um, to to scale down the fighting, and then when that doesn't work, often there's a step two, a step three, and the sanctions get harder.
14: That is exactly what most of the, uh, the people are looking for and waiting for they think that this is not enough as you as you know so the arabia and the united states have both started with the carrot when saudi arabia said i am giving a hundred million for the rehabilitation and the humanitarian services and the united states said we are giving 245 million so they started with the carrot but the carrot did not make any impact so they started with this phase and we look forward to an additional uh, uh, sanctions that can make a difference but i think before that they could have tried to create a a some sort of of mission that will be gu- guaranteed access by both the army and the uh, rapid support forces to areas where they are in control of and this might might pave the way for the acceptance of both, to me, I feel very, very clearly that the army is a bit is feeling a bit embarrassed because uh, the symbols of authority are in the hands of the RSF, and if they stop the war, and people knew where the army is standing and where the RSF is standing,
3: mm.
14: it becomes embarrassing for the army, which has a hundred years of existence, which has. 85 percent of the GDP of the Sudan, and its uh, its its leaders are talking uh, toughly uh, in the previous weeks and months and years that they are capable of keeping Sudan and things like this. And suddenly they said they surrender even their headquarters to to, well, a, to a support army that they call a, 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 a militia. It's very embarrassing. So sir, I if, if they don't in, have a heavy I, stick, they won't stop.
12: Are you telling us that the RSF is currently winning the war, at least on a military uh, level?
14: You see, there the, the, are two wars in Sudan. There is a war in the capital Khartoum, and there is a the war in the remainder of Khartoum. I am, for example, personally, I am from an area called West Kordofan State. In West Kordofan State, the community that stood up in the first week and brought together the the army and the Rapid Support Forces in the town, because there were two of them in the town, the capital of the state. And they said to them, please, we don't want both of you to fight here, because if you fight, it is we who are going to suffer. So please have peace between you, and let us wait for what happens in Khartoum. If what happens in Khartoum, the army— army's hand is the upper hand, we follow what happens in Khartoum. If the RSF is the upper hand, we follow what is happening in Khartoum. But we should not fight between us here. And this is what has happened in most of the capitals of the 14 states in, uh, in Sudan. The problem now is Khartoum. And in Khartoum, the one the, the who have the bigger share that people see in the streets in front of their houses, in control is RSF. Mm. Everyone is saying that.
15: Dr. Abdul-Karim, Including the
14: army itself. The army itself is saying we are not in 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 hold of Khartoum State, but we are in hold of the other states of Sudan.
12: Abdul-Karim Elgoni, thank you for sharing your insights with us today.
14: Thank you.
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview on the current security situation in the Republic of Sudan as we speak. And uh, right now we want to move to the Republic of South Africa, uh, where there is a BRICS foreign ministers summit uh, that's taking place this weekend, uh, bringing together uh, the foreign ministers of Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And uh, this was a briefing uh, they delivered uh, based upon uh, their discussions uh, over the weekend.
7: The BRICS Ministers of Foreign Affairs meeting is taking place today and tomorrow in Cape Town. Let's take you through to that session.
16: It will be from Bulelani uh, from the SAPC. There is a microphone next to you there. Uh, good evening, uh, Minister, and to all the Foreign Affairs Ministers. Uh, my name is Bulelani from the SABC. Uh, Minister Pando, I just want you to explain to South Africans the Gazette of uh, Immunity and uh, Privileges that was gazetted. Who does it cover uh, for this meeting as well as the August uh, BRIC Summit? Would that include uh, the Heads of State, uh, particularly uh, President uh, Vladimir Putin? And secondly, what's your take on the court action that has been initiated relating to trying to force the government to make an arrest if uh, President Putin does come to South Africa. Thanks.
17: Jason, you are very competent to answer that question uh, because you've dealt with it over more than uh, five days uh, in the media. I don't know if Bulelani was awake uh, when you made so many statements about the matter. So perhaps you could explain it's a normal practice when countries host international conferences issue such gazettes. Uh, could you uh,
16: just explain? No, actually I was on SABC earlier today. We've explained that uh, each time South Africa hosts an international conference or summit, we gazette diplomatic immunities and privileges. This is nothing out of the ordinary. We've done this previously when we hosted BRICS in 2018, in 2013, COP 17, WSLD, and we also made the point, uh, Bulelani, that these immunities that have been gazetted do not override any warrant that may be issued by any international tribunal against any attendee of any of the conferences that we're talking about. Uh, So that is your answer. We can have a bilateral after this if you want me to expand uh, further than that. Okay, the next question will be from Anton.
17: Kerbal had asked two questions. Uh, What is my take on, I think he said, uh, the DA uh, court case I don't have a take on it because the Justice Minister uh, must address that. Um, should I be uh, cited as a respondent, I'm not in receipt personally of the papers. The legal uh, officers will advise as to how we respond.
16: Thanks, Minister. Anton?
1: Uh, thank you, my name is Anton Zolotnitsky. is uh, from Russia and my question is to uh, Minister Lavrov. So as we see now, many countries declare their desire to um, be invited into the BRICS group. Um, For instance, today you uh, met with the delegation from Saudi Arabia who also expressed uh, their desire to do that. Uh, Could
16: you please tell us about uh, the progress that is being made in this uh, direction
1: and why do you think uh, BRICS attracts so many countries?
8: Thank you.
4: Well, Indeed, we we, we discussed this uh, issue, and I did discuss it with the Minister from Saudi Arabia this morning. Uh, As regards the approach of BRICS, it is still being shaped, it's evolving, uh, and the Sherpas reported to us uh, about the results they reached at this stage, and the chair authorized them to continue after They have listened to comments uh, which were made by each of us at the meeting. BRICS uh, is a different uh, structure. It's a new organization based on the principles of equality, mutual respect, consensus, non-interference, and strict adherence to the United Nations Charter, to all its principles in their interlinkages. It is not uh, for for Briggs, you know, to pick and choose something which you like in the chatter for this particular situation and then to do the opposite for another situation. So it's, uh, I think, I think Briggs uh, symbolizes the evolution of the multipolar world, uh, which is talked about very often and more and more so, and the attraction uh, to more than a dozen countries uh, of BRICS, uh, is a testimony to that.
16: The next question is from Юрий.
13: Добрый вечер. Юрий Когалов, Российская газета. Сергей Викторович, не могли бы Вы прокомментировать эту историю, будто бы саммит БРИКС якобы мог быть перенесен из ЮР в Китай. Как Вы относитесь к этому?
0: Minister Lavrov, my question from Rosizka Gazeta is about the information that we have read in the media about the BRICS summit allegedly being moved to China. What's
13: your take on that?
4: As I understand, this news was published only in one, some yellow English newspaper. I an English
10: information was
15: published
0: just just in one British tabloid, and I don't read British papers.
16: Thank you very much, Minister. Um, We're going to move to Julie from CGTN. Uh, Is the microphone next to you, or it's coming? Good
13: evening, Ministers. Um, I do think it's similar to what my colleague asked uh, a little
8: bit before, but this question is for the Vice uh, Foreign Minister from China. So the August summit is being taunted as one of the most important ones. Could we ask you to comment um, if the BRICS will be expanding to other countries and um,
13: who will likely to be included and what is the criteria? Thank you.
8: Thank, thank you very much for your question. And we all remember in 2017, it was the Xiamen meeting started the uh, uh, quote and quote, the uh, BRICS Plus model. And uh, we can also recall in 2022, when China chaired the um the uh, meetings or dialogues uh, of the uh, BRICS Plus was held in many, many areas. And so uh, we can see that uh, for the past years, the model of uh, BRICS Plus uh, uh, developing very, very fast. And that was uh, very well recognized by the BRICS countries as well as the international community and actually have provided one platform for the solidarity cooperation uh, between the developing countries and the emerging market economies. So we are very happy to see this kind of model has been developing in the right way. And uh, last year uh, during the uh, Beijing summit uh, the leaders of the BRICS reached consensus uh, on the uh, steps for the furthering of the uh, expansion of the BRICS and uh, we are happy to see that uh, more and more countries express their willingness to join us uh, in the BRICS family. Uh, for China we welcome uh, the uh, intention of those countries to join the BRICS and we expect more country to join our big family. And I think the uh, uh, BRICS countries is uh, inclusive and uh, pursue the uh, uh, road of opening up and also win-win cooperation. And uh, uh, this is uh, in uh, very sharp contrast to uh, some countries, small circle, and uh, so I believe the enlargement of the BRICS will be beneficial to the BRICS countries, beneficial to developing countries, and to increase the representation influence of this mechanism, and also to uh, garner a bigger uh, power of the BRICS to serve the interests of developing countries and emerging market economies, as well as the international uh, development course.
16: Thank you very much. Uh, Saeed. Thank you. Uh, My name is Saeed, I'm from Phoenix TV, China. Uh, My question is some Western countries are trying hard to all the emerging markets and developing countries to, to their point of view. So they appear to do this using various means which comes at a risk of the development of those countries. My question is, in your view, how should the emerging markets and the developing countries deal with this matter? Thank you.
8: Since you start to ask question in Chinese, so I answer your question in Chinese. Uh, but we have interpretations. Today's be meeting tomorrow's 呃, 会议的主题呢, the
18: BRICS Foreign Ministers Meeting today and the Friends of BRICS Foreign Ministers Meeting tomorrow will both be the gatherings of the representatives of emerging markets and developing countries, and both are themed on solidarity, progress, and win-win cooperation.
8: 同时呢我们也看到这个世界上也有个别国家他们热衷于拉小圈子搞脱口断裂对一些发展国家的发展包括中国在内进行打压恶势本质上就是不允许别国发展搞经济胁迫这个同我们金专国家的团结合作形成了鲜明的对照
18: But we at the same time see that some uh, certain countries in the world trying to contain uh, other countries, seek decoupling and sever supply chains. They're building exclusive circles and trying to suppress and contain the development of China and other developing countries. Essentially, they do not wish to allow the developing countries to achieve development or economic prosperity. This is in sharp contrast with what BRICS is doing.
8: 是历史潮流, 打压和遏制, but history has already told us
18: that the development and strengthening of developing countries is a trend of history that will not be stopped. And in the face of such suppression, containment, we must do the following four things.
8: 啊,第一個呢要做到自信。First, be confident. The
18: emerging markets and developing countries including the BRICS countries all enjoy profound history and traditions and splendid cultures and civilizations. This is the source of our confidence and of our wisdom and
8: strength. Second, be independent.
18: Emerging markets and developing countries should manage their own affairs and these affairs are up to ourselves. No one else has the right to lecture us, or take away our right to follow a path that suits our own national
8: conditions。第三呢, 就要自立, 啊, Third, be self-reliant.
18: The developing countries and emerging markets are equal members of the international community. We do not depend on or please anybody, and still less will we threaten anyone. All the efforts we make are aimed to deliver a better life for our own
8: peoples. And
18: the last point is to be self-strengthening. Emerging markets and developing countries should have a greater representation and voice in world affairs. We have the willingness and the ability to make our due contribution to world peace and development.
8: 在明天的会议上, 跟更, 更多的发展中国家, 经营市场国家, 进一步进行讨论, 交流, 凝聚更多的共识, 为世界的和平发展, and
18: I look forward to tomorrow meeting where we will have further exchanges with other emerging markets and developing countries to build more consensus for cooperation and make a greater contribution to world peace and development.
16: Thank you very much, Excellency. We've got the last two questions. Aisha Ismail.
7: Good evening. My name is Aisha Ismail from ENCA. I'd like to know from the ministers from India and Brazil your views on the expansion of the BRICS family.
8: Uh, you know, we, we had a detailed discussion, as my colleague ministers told you. Uh, and uh, uh, what happened last year was that uh, the BRICS leaders had asked us to formulate the guiding principles, the standards, the criteria and the procedures. Uh, this is still work in progress. So uh, so uh, I think uh, we are approaching this with a positive intent with an open mind uh, and uh, I also want you to appreciate uh, that uh, there are many aspects of it. One part of it is actually to consolidate.
1: Welcome back, and that was uh, excerpts uh, from a briefing uh, by the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa BRICS summit foreign ministers uh, who are meeting this weekend in the Republic of South Africa, and uh, they are discussing the upcoming. BRICS Summit, uh, which will take place in the Republic of South Africa next month. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast.
19: You're the boy who had to play when I should play
1: Holloway uh, via uh, Los Angeles, uh, California, with the legendary uh, hit song, Every Little Bit Hurts. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for this Saturday, June 3rd, uh, 2023. Uh, We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll go into our last segment, uh, which deals uh, with the origins of contemporary music in the United States, the post-World War II rock and roll, uh, rhythm and blues. So let's listen to this focus on DJ Records out of uh, Gary, Indiana in Chicago and Record Row which was located in Chicago. Let's listen in.
10: It was blues Chicago. It was blue. It was rock and roll. And it was Windy City soul. On a musical mile in Chicago, independent record companies pumped out hits that made America dance. It was a different sound.
20: The world loved something different. It's
21: amazing that this is black music. There weren't any black entrepreneurs in it.
20: We tried to set the standard for what black people should do in the record business. We had the best music. And we gave the
15: best parties. I mean, it was the best.
10: It was the dawn of rhythm and blues, and on one Chicago street, R&B history was made. This is Etta James, and the street was Record Row.
22: Major funding for Record Row, Cradle of Rhythm and Blues, was provided
5: by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Additional funding was provided by the Central Educational Network, the Illinois Humanities Council, and the National Academy of Recording
10: Arts and Sciences. Black Chicago. In the 1950s, it was booming. 800,000 African Americans called the Windy City home, and 2,000 more black folk arrived from the South every week. They came for jobs in northern factories and steel mills. They came for a chance at a better life. And in Chicago, they found so many ways to enjoy themselves. In Southside nightclubs and beer joints, they danced to live music and to records spinning on the jukebox. But to hear this music over the airwaves, black Chicagoans tuned their radio to one voice.
15: Now it's time for your old friend and swingmaster, Al Benson. Al Benson. Thank you.
2: And good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Here I am, all ready and all set, to bring to you 30 minutes of Red Hot Beat Me Down, bring you up spring tunes of today. And now
20: it's on with the show.
10: Benson was the first DJ in the city to broadcast the gut-bucket delta blues of the South and the up-tempo rhythms from the West Coast. Al Benson played rhythm and the blues, and it was just what black Chicago wanted to hear. With Benson playing the music and blacks earning more money, sales of R&B records soared. In segregated America of the 1950s, black music was basically ignored. By most major record labels, only a handful of small companies made records for black consumers, but as the demand for black music grew, dozens of independent record companies sprang up to cash in on a new market. Chicago was soon buzzing, with companies recording rhythm and blues, several of these record labels settled on South Michigan Avenue, a street that was known as Record Road. The street has changed a lot since it's heyday in the late 50s and early 60s. Tattered buildings, small businesses, and parking lots hide record Row's former glory when it was home to 17 record distributors and a half a dozen record labels with names like Chess, Wonderful, Chant, King, Constellation, Brunswick, and DJ. Back then, The street was hot. Record labels fought to be the first to get their song on the radio. Would-be producers covered the city looking for talent. Steel workers and cab drivers became stars overnight. There was such
23: an abundance of excitement that was created in this little area between Roosevelt Road and 22nd street.
24: Everyone knew everyone, we all ate at the same restaurant, fast restaurant in the new Michigan hotel. Many times a guy would start at one end trying to sell you his song or master, and work his way up. Sometimes they'd sell it two or three times and be laughing all the time. Back in those days, you could come you could hit every major company in
25: the world in two blocks.
23: It was unbelievable. And You could walk down one side and up the other, and you would run into somebody with a hit record in their back pocket.
3: Um,
10: um, uh, uh, The music that drove record roll was mostly black music, written and performed by black artists. But most of the power was in the hands of white record men like Leonard and Phil Chess, two of the most loved, hated, and influential men in the black music industry. They came over from Poland with their family in 1928.
20: My dad had a junkyard on 29th and State Street, and my brother used to go and help him during the summer and on Saturdays. Right across here was a little run run down shack. There was a church. And when they get in a groove on a Saturday or Sunday they'd start clapping their hands, man, you sit stand there and you couldn't help. But, but but jump to the music. That's when we first heard the music.
10: In nineteen forty five, the Chess Brothers owned a nightclub for blacks, called the Macamba Lounge. They hired musicians to entertain the crowd with jazz and urban blues. Whoa! Blacks crowded these clubs for the nightlife and the music. Leonard and Phil saw an opportunity. There weren't many recordings of these musicians, so they quit the bar business and became record men and started up a relationship with DJ Al Benson. Al
24: Benson would play a record four times in a row as he took care of him, right? (laughs) And you had have instant reaction. He had, he was the first with a major black listening audience. Major, but that's the only place they could hear it.
10: down
2: the Eli to get my pistol out
10: of barn. many blues artists were unskilled laborers by day and blues men by night they brought their harmonicas and guitars from the south and amplified them creating a new sound urban blues <laughs> The first hit maker for Chess Records was a truck driver named McKinley Morganfield, better known as Muddy Waters.
23: Just don't work on you.
10: Muddy's vocal style and bottleneck guitar playing were born in the Mississippi Delta, and his music influenced a generation of blues and rock musicians.
22: Muddy Waters along with the chess records and Bennett that amplified harmonica in guitar
20: here in Chicago. Muddy was chess records. To me it was chess records. He was
10: the foundation. And on that foundation, Chess built the number one blues label in the world. Their artists were legendary. Holland Wolf, Little Walter, Sonny Boy Williamson, and Jimmy Rogers. The Chess brothers were equal partners in the company, but it was Leonard who was the driving force. He was a sharp businessman with a streetwise personality and a hot temper that spared no one—not even his own son.
24: I went to ask him when I first started working there what my job was. He got really mad at me. I, was, I you know, what the f- are you asking me that? <laughs> Watching me is your job. <laughs> and when you're ready, I'll let you do something. You just got to watch me. You watch me eat. You watch me drive. You watch me talk. That's
10: what he's saying. He got mad that I asked it. Leonard and Phil Chess knew the music, but they weren't of the music. So in 1951, Leonard hired bass player Willie Dixon to help out in the studio. Oh, when my baby kissed me and she squeezed me real
23: tight, she looked me in the eyes and say, give it. Things
4: all right. I get
10: nervous. Willie Dixon soon became producer, talent scout, and songwriter for the label. His music propelled the careers of many blues artists and helped Chess and Chicago become a magnet for blues musicians. At one point in
22: time, Chicago was the capital of the world in blues. You can ask the Rolling Stones or the Clapton's or whoever came here.
25: The blues is a, is a basic backbone of just about every form of popular music there is uh, in this century. Now,
2: when I was a young boy, <laughs> at the
25: age of five, <laughs> Chicago has produced uh, everybody that turned the on. But I must say that those guys Howling Wolf, Muddy, and John Lee. The greats are gent. Always I mean, they I always got the feeling that they looked upon us as little seeds they planted that come home. Me,
24: honey. I have lots of fun. I'm a
3: stone.
2: I'm
10: as unique and important as chess was there was another company just six blocks down the street that also made history, V.J. Records, the most financially successful black-owned record company before Motown. V.J. started
2: in 1953
10: with a doo-wop group called the Spaniels. Their catalog covered blues, jazz, gospel, R&B, and rock and roll. In fact, V.J. was the first American company to sign the Beatles.
23: What you have to know about V.J. Records is that the V stood for Vivian, and the J stood for Jimmy, which was Jimmy Bracken.
15: (laughs) Everything was special about V.J. Records. What was special about V.J. Records? Okay, V.J. Records was started by a woman who had been A waitress in the Club de Lisa. Her name was Vivian Carter Bracken. She was a student of Al Benson. And she went over into Gary and started a radio show and opened up a record store. And out of opening up this record store, said, These people come in here and they buy these records. And some of these records are hard to find. And she told her husband, who owned a little of shoeshine parlor and and stuff and said why don't we start making these records
10: so vivian and her husband jimmy bracken took a 500 hundred dollar loan from a pawn shop and built a multi-million dollar business
2: well, I died, I tell you, baby, make no
10: when vivian and jimmy were auditioning one blues singer a backup musician named jimmy reed caught their ear they asked him if he'd written any songs and Jimmy said no, but I've made up a few. Jimmy Reed became the label's top blues man and helped VJ give chess a run for its money in the blues market. But you don't find artists like Jimmy Reed too often. A hit record has to be crafted, and Calvin Carter, the label's chief producer and Vivian's younger brother, was responsible for the creative side of DJ. Calvin Carter was a strange mixture, actor,
15: musician, politician, crybaby, ex-Marine Corps. He had this soul, this, this thing inside of him that heard unusual talent. Calvin Carter was a non-musician musician. I mean, he didn't play anything, but he could hear everything.
3: He loved me I want to know How can
15: I tell I recall be the Shoop Shoop song with I Betty I Everett, And he had people stomping on telephone books. To
20: get that Oh yeah, it in his face? Oh no, People
15: often wondered how in the world did he get that sound out of the bass drum. Well it was the bass drum, it was people stomping on telephone books.
21: Calvin knew talent and Vivian uh, understood what was happening and could play it and um, uh, but they didn't have uh, they didn't have the knowledge of the industry uh, or the background to, to take it beyond where they were, and Jimmy was smart and knew that. So they kind of brought me in and immediately made me general manager of the company, and two years later made me president.
15: Not only was he a genius in terms of marketing and merchandising, uh, Eugard Abner was one of those guys who could stay up for three or four days at a time and just entertain people and hypnotize them and, draw him into his spirit.
21: And I had some dreams and some visions, see, about it. I had watched the white companies. I'd watched Chess take Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Willie Dixon. I'd watched Atlantic in New York, you know, and saw what they did. And so I said, hey, man, you know, this town, we can do this.
10: Abner knew black DJs were vital to record sales. And in those days, DJs were paid to play. Not only was it legal,
21: it was expected. I was the bag man for the company, by that I mean I take the bag out, cash, cash type money out, because even though you send them, even though you sent the jocks the checks on a regular basis, this was sort of like a retainer, see, this was a retainer to keep the relationship cool, okay, so that your records can be at least considered to be played. Now when you want serious play, now that's a whole, that escalates to another level, see, now you gotta go out there and you gotta put the green on them, okay, and, and you gotta be a friend to do that. You know, we go to breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know. Get wasted with them, party with them, play cards with them. I mean, they became friends. With Abner making the
10: connections, VJ artists were getting airplay on black stations around the country. They had every kind of music a black audience could want.
2: I love the way you walk
10: from the blues of John Lee Hooker, the doo-wop hits of the Magnificent and the El Dorado, and gospel songs from the Staple Singers and the Caravan. Record sales soared, and so did black businesses along record road, Despite racial barriers and segregation, Record Row was a rare place where black
26: entrepreneurs could grab a piece of the American dream. With the creation of Record Row came the creation of many new opportunities for black professionals. Black professional musicians, accountants, businessmen, entrepreneurs. The Leaner brothers, for example, formed the United Distributors.
10: United Record Distributors started up when DJ Al Benson gave a loan to his nephews, Ernie and George Liener, two ambitious brothers from Mississippi.
20: United Record Distributors was the first and only black independent record distributor in the United States.
10: They focused on black music and hired black personnel to ship and promote records to black DJs across the country giving them a competitive edge against other distributors.
20: It also made the other distributors hire black salesmen, promotion men, that were not involved because as we were going to the VONs and the other radio stations, then they said, well, how come y'all can't have folks that look like the folks
25: that come from United? Remember now, this was the only black distributorship in Chicago And we were, you know, proud of them.
26: I mean, they were there with the big boys and holding their own. Record Row provided role models. You know, I'm sure no one quite looked at it in that way at that time, but it did send a signal that black entrepreneurship can work. The rhythm and
10: blues industry on record row was born out of segregation, just like the race film industry of the 1930s, which reflected black life and the Negro Baseball leagues that gave blacks their own national pastime. But there was an important difference. These entertainments were confined to black communities. But Rhythm & Blues music was on the radio, and the airways carried it across America's color line. A few white DJs even began playing the music, like Alan Freed, who called it rock and roll to make it more acceptable to the parents of white teenagers.
2: You women have heard of the lobbies, you've heard the noise they made. But, let me...
10: but call it rock and roll or rhythm and blues, it was still black music and segregationists campaign to stop it. We've uh, set up a
26: 20-man
24: committee to do away with the, this vulgar, animalistic, nigger rock and roll box.
26: The protest about the music had more to do with the social policies of the South of, of keeping the races apart and at the same time keeping this black so called black influence out of the community. The black kids, the white kids were listening to this music. So what the record companies had to do was to figure and radio stations. The music was in demand. Well how can we give these teenagers the music that they want to hear and not offend their parents. So the solution was cover records.
11: No, what to do. A went through the East, went through the West. She's a that
2: I love Doody
21: booty, all booty. Doody booty, all booty. Our music was made acceptable to the general market by these white artists covering it, because the radio stations would not play the black artists playing the record. But that same record done very close to. like they copy arranged they to copy everything. It by white artists, was acceptable to the pop stations, and they'd play it. Life would be Sh- me. Sh- if Sh- I could
2: Sh- take Sh- you up in paradise up above. If Sh- 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 you would Sh- tell Sh- me I'm Sh- the only one Sh- that you love. Life could be a dream, sweetheart. let tweetly, let dear. I'm as happy
19: as can be.
21: He's had jokes every time that, uh, Laverne Baker would do a song, Georgie Gibbs over here would cover it immediately, do the same song, and Laverne would sell to the black market X number, you know, and Georgie would sell to the white market X to the 10th power or something. A lot of stations wouldn't
15: play Laverne Baker. They would play the cover versions by Georgie Gibbs or Pat Boone or whoever was doing it. Uh, that was, there's it, a big stink about nothing. And the, the truth of the music eventually came through. The real artists got their due. Usually when people are not personally affected by an injury, they have a tendency to think in terms of the injury not being so great. The Spaniels, for instance, record a song called Good Night Sweetheart, Good Night. Sell a half a million copies, basically in the black community. The McGuire Sisters records the same song uh sells two or three million copies it's about money and when you are denied access to a market based on the color of your skin that becomes personal it no longer becomes much to do about nothing
10: as strong as racism was, capitalism was even stronger. When white kids grew bored with covers and started demanding the real thing, white DJs started playing it.
2: Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, can't you be true? Just doing the things you used to do. Oh.
10: It was a dramatic turning point in pop music history black music began to cross over to white radio. In 1955, one of the biggest crossover artists out of Chicago was Chuck Berry on Chess Records. I'm in the Michigan and I got the radio on. And I was
20: like, God damn, I said, that's Maybelline. Well, I mean, in in about an hour, I must've heard it about eight or 10 times. God damn, next thing I know, I got a call my brother. Man, forget the goddamn Parents Weekend. Get your butt back here, man. We got to ship records.
10: Chuck Berry wrote songs that exploited the white teen experience with tales of high school, lost love, and new cars. The heat went down. That's what I heard
2: that highway sound. Cadillac satin' like a ton of lead. Harder than 10 and a half a mile old. Cadillac look like a set in I caught a baby lean on top of that top of that hill.
24: We have something that was the right time and the right sound for America. They called Elvis Presley the king of rock and roll. I I disagree.
20: I agree with Chuck Berry. He said he was the king of rock and roll, and I believe it. I really do.
10: Earlier that year, another chess artist, Ellis McDaniels, better known as Bo Diddley, also crossed over to a white teen audience. But he might never have been a chess artist at all. If VJ Records just down the street hadn't rejected him,
22: they wasn't interested because I was playing something different and something they never heard before. It sounded too, too primitive, or something something other. I, I guess that's what it was, you know. But and I went to and to Chess and there and Phil Chess called Leonard and told Leonard that uh, hey. This guy got something different here, you know. It just might turn out to be something. Let's try it, and here I am. Let's run one down, Bo. Oh,
12: oh.
10: Rolling, Master A. Master A, take one. Bo played the guitar with a drum-like rhythm, a technique that got him a spot on the Ed Sullivan Show in
20: 1955. He had a big record out called Bo Diddley. At the same time, there was a big record out called 16 Tons. Now, did this 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 big Han show, what's Sullivan, once Bo Diddley to do sixteen ton. But man, I am not goddamn say I don't nothing about no sixteen ton.
22: I'm supposed to be playing my 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 hit song, you know what I'm saying? Not sixteen ton Why you got sixteen ton
20: Now he don't know Bo Diddley from Adam, man. I mean he never listened to that. He gets up there and he waits for him to do sixteen ton and he he does Bo Diddley. Oh,
2: did the body pay
20: When it was over, he said, "You'll
10: never be on my show again." <laughs> Bo didn't have to be on Sullivan's show again. That one appearance was enough to make him a million seller and put Chess Records on the map. For VJ Records, Bo Diddley was the one that got away. But there were plenty of crossover successes for VJ. D. Clark was one of them, with pop hits like Raindrops and Hey Little
3: Girl.
11: He had an amazing voice, a clear, tenor, penetrating voice, and uh, could just just sing his butt off.
21: This throbbing in
19: my brain, so strange I can't explain, but I like it, I like it, mm, like it, how
3: about
11: that? Dee was a man who sounded like a woman in the high register, and that was unique. I said, wow, what is that? His music probably seventy-five percent of it sold to white people.
25: It wasn't what you call real soul. It was called we used to call it the happy flute sound because they used flutes in the background of the records.
2: How about that? In
10: 1962, two independent producers, Bill Bunky Shepherd and Carl Davis, brought a song and a singer to VJ
26: they had a hunch that he'd be a sensation. world, can
25: stop I put the song together in a rehearsal. We were just opening up our throats, Do, 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 going up the scales. And I just told them to say, do, do, do. It was really do, 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 D-O-D-O. And we began to say, do, do, do. do.
23: I said, we got to cut that tomorrow, because the session was the next day. And they said, wait, no, we don't, we don't have no lyrics for this song. we so we we'll go home and write something.
21: And it was, to me, a strange sounding record. Doop, 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 Duke." do There's a whole bunch of Dukes, you know. But Calvin said, Calvin Cardig in the ear. Calvin said, "Ad, that's a smash.
23: I'll never forget, we released the Duke of Earl November the 5th, 1962. And by Christmas, it was almost the number one record in the country.
10: The Duke of Earl sold over a million copies and helped make V.J. one of the most successful R&B labels in the country. But for Abner, it wasn't enough. He wanted V.J. to tap the dollars of the white pop market. To do
21: that, the label would need more than crossover music. Racism was a fact of life, that existed, and segregation, all that kind of stuff, so... So what? I mean, I hate it, and it's bad, and it's wrong, and it's immoral, and all that kind of stuff, but I gotta move. We had white guys that worked for us who did promotion in the South. We had Red Schwartz did promotion for us in the, on the East Coast. Whatever it took to get whatever we needed, I'd hire it. I didn't see any reason why VJ shouldn't be what we call a full-line label. Jazz, blues, spiritual, country and western, pop. I thought we could do it, and we set about doing it. And they did. VJ had one
10: of the biggest hits in jazz history, with Eddie Harris's "Exodus to Jazz. And in 1962, Abner put VJ on the map in the pop market. VJ launched the four Seasons. <laughs> But the move that assured VJ a place in rock and roll history happened in 1962 when they went to EMI Records in England to pick up the U.S. rights to a British crooner, Frank Ifield. I remember you. As part of the deal, EMI threw in a group that was popular in England but virtually unknown in America. Once again, it was a story of one record company picking up a group that another company turned down. EMI first offered the Beatles to its own
21: American subsidiary, Capitol Records. But if Capitol doesn't want it, then EMI is free to pedal it. So Capitol, for some reason or another, whoever was in charge at that time said, I, I don't like this stuff, no. And so I said, okay, let's go for it. The Beatles were hot
10: in Europe, but their first American single, Please Please Me, didn't even crack the top 100 in the US. So after one more disappointing single, in the spring of 63, VJ put their plans for the Beatles along with the rest of the master tapes on the shelf. As the 60s arrived, R&B began to embrace the sounds of the black church and turn away from the blues. It was music we would later call soul. The dawn of soul in Chicago was VJ's For Your Precious Love by The Impressions featuring lead singer Jerry Butler and a 16 year old singer and guitarist Curtis Mayfield.
22: We loved singing For Your Precious Love. That was one of our better songs and of course that's what we used to audition. And we uh, won over with that particular song.
10: Curtis became the most prolific songwriter of the Chicago soul era. But it was Jerry Butler who wrote the lyrics to For Your Precious Love.
15: Rolling Stone magazine said that our recording of For Your Precious Love kind of urshed in what people later became to know as soul music. That there was this wonderful marriage of the street and the church, the secular and the spiritual.
10: Jerry Butler went solo in 1959 and several of his early hits were written and composed with Curtis
3: Mayfield. He's trying to have a
10: With Jerry Butler gone, Curtis took over the impression. And with Fred Cash and Sam Gooden, the group blended mellow R&B harmonies and black gospel styles. The result was Silky Smooth Soul. Say it's alright, it's
3: alright, say it's alright.
25: Curtis Mayfield wrote some of the greatest love songs of all time as far as I'm concerned. My favorite Curtis Mayfield song is Rainbow. God, singing it for 30 years and I have the same feeling. It drives me into the same world of ecstasy. I'm trying to do something to about that. Baby, baby, baby.
3: Come, Come on, stop this
25: rainbow. <laughs> yeah.
22: Well, there always has been a Chicago sound. I mean, there are so many fantastic artists, uh, whether they be blues, contemporary or gospel. Uh, were recorded out of Chicago.
10: One of those artists was Major Lance. He danced his way on to the pop charts with Curtis Mayfield's Monkey Time. But it was the producer of the Duke of Earl, Carl Davis, who made Major Lance a star. He was a boxer.
23: He was a little prize fighter. So he could dance. I mean, he had moves that you wouldn't believe. But uh, Major was not the world's greatest singer. So what we did was we got the Impressions, which was Fred, Sam, and Curtis, and they did the background. And there were in the spots that Major was weak at, we had the background do the lead with him.
15: When you look at the guys who were part of the Chicago music scene, Carl Davis as a producer. uh, No recognition whatsoever, but I I don't know if there was anybody from that era, 60s and 70s, that could go any deeper in terms of
22: knowledge of record production and instincts.
10: From the mid-1960s through the early 70s, Carl Davis headed up Brunswick Records and pumped out hits with artists like the Shy Lights. Brunswick was part of a soul music explosion out of the city. Black teenagers danced to music from Chicago companies with names as upbeat as their sounds. OK, Wonderful, Marvelous, Constellation, Mercury, ABC Paramount, Chess, and Curtin. While these labels and others competed for Black America's attention, a label out of Detroit stepped up to steal the show. Motown reshaped R&D for mainstream America. They made it easy to dance to, added sequence, slick choreography, and captured both white and black audiences. One of their biggest innovations was the way they presented their artists. Teaching artists how to walk, talk, dress, perform, everything else.
11: That, uh, hence, before, I don't think had been done, not to that
10: extent. Billy Davis was the songwriting partner of Motown president Barry Gardy until Leonard Chess brought him to Chicago in
11: 1961. Leonard saw Motown rise and, and prosper, you know, so he wasn't dumb. <laughs> he realized he had to do something different uh, in order to sell more, more records.
3: And oh! And oh! And oh!
10: Davis left the slick pop sound of Detroit behind and went to work with Chicago artists. Yeah, yeah. Steeped in gospel and rough edge rhythm and blues. At chess he found artists like Sugar Pie DeSanto, Mitty Collier, Minnie Ripperton, and me, Eddie James.
2: Yeah yeah. yeah yeah! I believe that Sometimes
11: I loved Era because she had this, she was pre-Aretha, a great voice with a great soul, great heart.
24: She was such a character. I remember, she'd come with an entourage, a dressmaker, uh, a hairdresser, uh, this, that. And she was definitely in the, in the top echelon of a woman singer. Man, she could
10: sing. In the Billy Davis era, Chess added pop influences and full-blown arrangements and began to move away from the blues to music aimed at a new black generation. that found success with the label's new R&B sound started out as a doo-wop group, the Dells. When we were kids, we came to Chess and Leonard the Chess told Marvin, our lead
23: singer, said, uh, he asked me, he said, do you have a job? Marvin
15: said, yeah, I have a job.
20: I said, well, keep it, because you'll never be a singer. <laughs> That's the one time Leonard Chess was wrong.
3: Fire for
10: you. Soul had many different sounds. At Chess. the love ballads of Billy Stewart and the sweet voice of Fontella Bass. Baby and let
3: you
21: baby and let you a lot of people thought Rescue Me for years was a Motown sound because it was so up, but uh, it was really a Chicago sound. And we used to argue about the Motown and the Chicago and the Motowns in the Chicago, you know. So we both stole from one another, so. <laughs>
3: you,
10: Rescue Me was so big that it topped the pop charts and the R&B charts. But crossover success never sidetracked Leonard Chet from his main focus, the black audience. The Black.
2: Giant.
10: W-V-O-N. Giant Sound Soul. In the 60s, Black Chicago tuned to a low-powered radio station Leonard Chess brought in 1963. It was the first 24-hour black music station in the city.
23: Their playlist definitely helped record sales because if you weren't on their list, the stores wouldn't stock the product. You had to be on W-V-O-N.
15: Here's a lovely girl, honey, her name is Bob Braxton. She said, love makes the woman. Because it was the powerhouse black station in Chicago that made it one of the powerhouse black stations in America, and and thus a trendsetter. If you could break a record or or get a record happening in Chicago, it, it served as a precedent for getting it happening in New York
11: or L.A. or Detroit. Well, that's a guess, and not it? That's Herbert Rogers here. I, I don't think there's a radio station in the world that was hotter than this one when it was hot. And the amazing thing about it is we were um, 1,000 watts in the day and 250 at night. The big radio stations like WGN, WBBM, they were 50,000 watts.
10: Even with that,
11: we were number one. It was phenomenal. Everything was just phenomenal, but of course everything Leonard just touched uh, took off for him.
10: Leonard bought VON to boost record sales and to make money from commercials, but it grew into something more significant. The VON stood for Voice of the Negro, and yes, I think that station, more than any station I
25: know of, lived up to um, the fact that it was the voice of the black
21: community. The community relied on them to keep them informed on what was happening, what was going on, what causes were worth supporting, you know, what positions to take, who to get mad at, you know what I mean, in addition to selling grease for your hair and all the rest of that stuff, they did these other kinds of things too, but they were community people, they were more than just jockeys.
2: People get ready to
3: have a train of coming.
21: Black Chicago turned
10: to VON to hear news about the struggle for civil rights the fight to end segregation and for basic freedoms, the right to vote, the right to an education, and open housing. And the music began to reflect the call for black power. In Chicago, Curtis Mayfield was writing soul music with a message.
17: We're a winner
3: and never let anybody say, boy, well, you can't make
22: it. it. doesn't always have to be a love song. It can be a song of controversy, uh, a song of inspiration. Say it even when you know those in opposition may not like what you're saying. But be true to yourself.
10: The Soul Era marked a new age of self-determination for African Americans. have a
3: choice, of
10: cause. Curtis Mayfield was one of the first black performers to take control of his own music. He set up a publishing company to ensure ownership of his songs.
22: Usually no artist own themselves or own their own songs and I sought to change that at least for myself.
15: When Curtis talks about owning as much of yourself as possible, we came through a period when Guys like John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters and Jimmy Reed. These men, for all intents and purposes, were illiterate. Had no education. They never had their own publishing companies. Uh, Some of them never even had the copyright on the songs that they made up. And so, basically, they became musical
22: sharecroppers
10: or musical slaves. Record companies always kept the publishing rights to songs. That meant labels like Chess owned the music created by their artists.
24: The perception was that the artist would make his money mostly from appearances, gigging, rather than from record or publishing. But your
22: publishing is where all your money is at. You don't make no money out here in the street.
10: Chess was also accused of shortchanging performers on royalty payments.
21: If I got $10, you know, they got 10000 If I got 10000 they got $10 million. And that's the way it worked.
11: I, I don't think it's fair for history to say that, that Leonard Chess and Chess Records ripped off The black artists any more than B.J., or Motown, or Atlantic, or you name it. We began to demand things.
25: It's like before we were scared to uh, demand certain things as artists, and figure we shouldn't speak because it would hurt our careers or something. But we began to speak, and it helped a lot.
10: Artists like Curtis Mayfield started taking even more control of their music by forming their own record labels. Curtis and Eddie Thomas launched Curt Tom Records in 1968. It became a multi-million dollar label when Curtis scored a 1972 hit film. The soul era saw a dramatic rise in the popularity of black artists, but it also was the beginning of the end for many independent R&B labels because major record companies saw that black music could mean big profits. In 1963, V.J.'s artists were scaling the charts in pop, R&B, blues, jazz, and gospel. But appearances can be deceiving. The label's habit of big spending led to cash flow problems. When bills and
21: royalty payments came due, V.J. couldn't pay. Whenever you're expanding, you always spend more than you're than you're taking in during expansion. And my idea was to expand. I had a serious disagreement with with uh, with Jimmy and Vivian, and they felt that it was time to retrench. And I said, if you retrench now, we'll be little. We'll go back to being little again, and I don't want to be little. And uh, they said, but uh, we don't want to go in credit. I was going to borrow some money. I was going to get a line of credit. They said, we don't want to borrow money. It's ours.
10: To make matters worse, rumors began to
21: go around that Abner was gambling with V.J.'s money. No, it wasn't true. So. I didn't gamble with a company company. What people don't know is that, that I owned a third of the company, and I'm gambling. If I gamble with money, it's my money. So we did. I will say that I believe I helped integrate the crap tables in Las Vegas at the Dunes. Not that that's a worthy achievement or anything, but it's a fact.
2: I don't know why. I don't know why. There's no sun up in the sky.
21: They no said, no more will you run it. And I said, if I can't run it, I can't be here. And uh, so it wasn't a friendly party.
10: V.J. reorganized with a new president, a former promotion man, Randy Wood. In the transition, a gold mine slipped through the cracks. (laughs) The Beatles left V.J. in August 1963, claiming their royalties weren't being paid. By January of 64, they signed with Capitol Records, the label that had turned them down a year earlier. That same month, their popularity exploded, but V.J. still had the master tapes to 15 songs, and they believed they had the right to release them, so they did. Capitol Records sued. V.J. didn't have the money to fight a long, drawn-out legal battle, so they settled the label could continue to release its Beatles songs but only till the end of the year. The Beatles made VJ one of the highest grossing record labels in the nation. The company felt ready to take its place alongside the majors and moved its offices to Hollywood. At the same time, VJ's president, Randy Wood, made a critical mistake. He left Calvin Carter, VJ's ear, back in Chicago. Wood tried to repeat the company's previous success with white pop acts, but he didn't have the instincts of Abner and Calvin and repeatedly signed artists that just didn't sell.
2: I'll set my love to music.
10: Within two years, VJ was near
21: ruin. I was called back in nineteen sixty six. I got a call from Vivian and Jimmy, and Jimmy said, Ah, hey, I'm in real trouble and would you come back and help me sort it out? And I said, yes. But when I got out there, there was a fleet of, of cars, Cadillacs and Lincolns. I mean, talking about spending money, I, 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 it, it, was, it was just going through the records was just amazing to me. You know, it was amazing to me, and um, it was gone. And, and, and the people, uh, and the, all the people were gone. Abner was desperate.
10: So he moved the company back to Chicago. He felt the label had one last
21: chance. The Four Seasons still owed V.J. an album. But the deal was, I couldn't listen to the album. I just had to take it sight unseen. Could take it without listening to it, okay? And I, I said, should I, should I not? I said, okay, there's a big act, and hot, I'll take it.
2: Here they are, the Four Seasons!
21: What they gave me was a live album. songs that it had done before but it was not the kind of album was going to generate the kind of money that we needed the label owed a
10: million dollars in back taxes bj went bankrupt
21: i was really desperate when when the judge said he was going to sell it off that was very painful that was one of one of the darkest and unhappiest days of my life
10: A few years later, Abner landed at Motown. Eventually, he became president of the company. Vivian went back home to Gary, Indiana, and took a job as a gospel DJ. Jimmy tried to start another label, but it failed. Calvin Carter continued to produce records, but never again matched the success he had at DJ.
4: For those of
15: us in the community, you know, they were our champions. They were the best, and we made the best records, and we had the best music, and we gave the best parties. And, I mean, it was the best.
10: Chicago's R&B labels pumped out hits long after VJ was gone, but as their success increased, so did the competition from corporate America.
24: When the majors started to smell uh, money in R&B and black music, um, they began producing it, it, you know, using their, their big uh, bankrolls, buying masters for much more money than we would. And they had promotion men, teams of them, they would get their, their records on black radio. So the more, more of their records that went on, the less room there was for these small independent labels. In
10: 1969, Chess Records, the flagship of Record Row, was sold to an audio tape company
24: time marched on um, people all over the country and all over the world began making uh, you know, R&B music and it just eluded it and, and the pioneers began to die or lose interest or they got rich or they got broke my brother was
20: tired he was tired and, and, and I could see it
10: Leonard's death in 1969 foreshadowed the fate of record row one by one they began to shut their doors first the leaners Then the new owners of Chess, and in the mid-1970s, the last R&B company on South Michigan Avenue closed its doors. The vibrant recording industry on Record Road was gone, and with it, an R&B community that drove the sound of the black experience across the color line, changing the world of music forever.
3: If you stay...
21: A record is, it's your footprint in time, it's your footprint in sand, and these artists have got some magnificent ones, and, and uh, that's a piece of a guy or a girl's life, and that's their best effort, that's their best effort, and we were able to put it out there, make it available to those who wanted it, you know, spread it out there, and that's, that's a good feeling. I like that stuff.
20: This program may be seen again tomorrow night at 11.30.
25: And there's more music Saturday night on KCET when Austin City Limits presents a country showcase beginning at 11.30, followed at 12.30 by Tina Turner, What's Love, live. Charlie Rose is next.
1: Welcome back. uh,
5: Major funding uh,
22: for Record Row,
5: Cradle of Rhythm and Blues was provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Additional funding was provided by the Central Educational Network, the Illinois Humanities Council, and the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences.
1: That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, This is Black Music Month. And uh, we'll be back uh, in our next episode with more uh, African-American African music. This is Abayomi Zikawe uh, signing off. We'll close with Dinah Washington. Have a beautiful week.
19: The sky was blue and high above. The moon was new. So was love. This eager heart of mine is singing, Lover, where can you be? You came at last, love had it day. That day is past, you've gone away. This aching heart of mine is singing, Lover, come on back to me. Well, I remember every little thing we used to do. So lonely. Every road I walk along, I've walked alone with you. No, I wonder I am lonely. The sky is blue, the night is cold, the moon is new, but love is old. And while I'm waiting here, this heart of mine is singing, lover, lover, come back to me.